uh, how to raise them. I've always had an answer, a pet answer for that, and no one ever listens to me. So I can just give you my pet answer. We'll go do it. Buy an island, throw them on the island. Isn't that right? Here. We'll just go by, throw them on the island. Go pick them up when they're 32. Okay. What's left? <laughs> oh, no. We're, we can be funny about that, but that's... Uh, there's some, some things and some stages, and I want to just touch on these stages again. Bible talks about, and, and, and again, I'm using the term foolish or fools, foolishness, because it's the term of Proverbs. They use it a lot, and that's the term we're going to use. Uh, but there is, uh, there is so much um, that we, we need to really have an understanding of when it comes to the various stages uh, within uh, a child's life. Uh, you know, I, I, and I talked about this this last week, and I'm going to move up to where I left off. But uh, foolishness actually, uh, you know, begins to develop in a human heart from birth. Uh, in an infancy, it is aroused. So in infancy, a child, a, a baby, learns that the only way to get a, a mom's attention is to throw a fit. You know, without throwing the fit and crying, then the diaper stays wet. It doesn't get fed, so it learns to manipulate, if you would, at infancy. It learns that if I'm going to get anything, I'm going to have to make noise. And that, that baby learns it then. So in infancy, it's aroused. In childhood, it's learned. They learn in childhood to take it to the next step. In adolescence, it is angry, or what we call incensed. And in and this is this is the part that it's it's very very interesting scripturally it talks about it and uh, as i looked at this i've seen this uh, many times and so have you but in adulthood if it is allowed to continue operating it will become what we're going to call rearranged and this goes right along with a jezebel spirit because if allowed to continue Manipulation becomes a part. That's the rearrangement. It's no longer throwing a fit, but it's manipulating people. And there's a lot of that that is, that is learned and continues on even, and we're going to talk about that in more detail, but continues on uh, into adulthood. And it's, uh, it's pretty sad when you begin to think of it. But the last stage, or not next to the last stage, stage three is what I want to begin with here this evening. And we're going to talk about incensed foolishness or anger, if you would. And this stage begins when a child is in puberty. And it ends when he's found a way to resolve the crisis that puberty triggers. Now, during this stage, a child learns strategies for manipulation or manipulating relationships. Uh, you know... And, and, and they, they, they begin to do this a lot of times. Now, you understand when you get to adolescence, all of a sudden we treat children a little bit differently. They're no longer children. And we expect more out of them. And so you've got this, this boy who one day is playing with his, his uh, toy machine gun, and the next day he's expected to, to no longer be a child any longer. This is adolescence. Some of them, uh, some of it begins at 11, sometimes 12. You know, girls are... Uh, they're more mature than boys are, but still, it's, you know, it's expected. She's, she's playing with Barbie dolls one day, and the next day she no longer wants to play with them. 
Anybody remember that in your own childhood? You remember that, that it was almost like a, a, a one day you were that way and the next day you were a different way? I remember that. I can remember. And, and you know, you've got, you got adults expecting more out of you, and still there's a part of you that's a child. So this is what they're dealing with. So, so they're, they're, now what they did, you know, it's, they're meeting with frustration and failure. They can no longer do it the same way they did it before. Manipulation has to change. And because of changes in others' expectations of him and changes in his perception of others, then childhood strategies become inadequate to provide him with a sense of love and, and, and impact. All a child is always trying to do is find a way to be accepted and loved. And they do it so stupidly sometimes. I mean, you, you see it today. You know, you can see these kids. I've seen them in the church. You know, they, they, they go to school. They're fine through the sermon. They go to school and they come back with their pants dragging the ground and, and their hats on backwards. You know, they, 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 <laughs> and you know, you know, what, what they're doing is to be accepted at school. But now it's not accepted at church. I mean, we love them, but we don't like it. I can't stand it. Okay, I can't stand it. I absolutely can't stand it. And and the older I get, the more I can't stand it. So so, but you know, these 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 children are just trying to be loved and and, and make an impact. Somehow they're going to make an impact. And then what he's been conditioned during how he's been conditioned during his childhood to trust in is suddenly proves worthless. So he can no longer operate that way. He feels betrayed. He feels betrayed by his world, he's betrayed by himself, and he's even betrayed by God. He experiences great contempt for all three. So then he becomes an angry fool, if you would. An angry, foolish person. Parents must not think they can prevent their sons or daughters from experiencing this stage. It's it's not going to happen. I remember when Anthony went through it. I got pictures. (laughs) <laughs> Pants didn't drag the ground. I promise it never did. <laughs> I love it. You know, I, he is one guy up here. You can always tell I embarrass him. Every time I do this, I embarrass him, and I enjoy it so much. <sighs> it is an inevitable consequence that confronts everyone who emerges from childhood, having learned a way to make life pleasurable apart from entering into a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and that's the key that's the reason we lose so many children about 13 14 and 15 years old because we've not helped them the way we should to enter into that right kind of relationship and I'm hoping this evening to get into how we can help them more but that's the key for everything. And, folks, it comes down to this regardless. I, I, I can almost tell you ahead of time, when children are, are babies, I can look at the parents and the actions of the parents, and unless, they, and, you know, unless there's some drastic changes in the future, I can tell you those kids are going to be okay or if they're not going to be okay. Because you can tell by the actions of the parents and how they, you know, the children respond and how they're a part of everything and how you know, their parents are humble and they're, and, they're, and they're dedicated to God. You can tell. And you know everything's going to be okay. And, and sadly enough, and I, I'm getting off here a little bit, but you know, I said all that and you can, you can say, well, what about preachers who their kids are not as dedicated? There's another side to that. There's the side when you're so dedicated that you never spend any time with your children. That's not really dedication to God. Because being dedicated to God means that you're going to love and take care of your family. 
That, that's, that's just part of it. That's dedication to God. Yes, sir, Jesus Christ is first. But Jesus Christ being first means I'm going to put my, my children and my, my wife or my husband, whatever it may be, they're going to be right there. Right there. Real close. Uh, how can you say, you know, Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. How in the world can you love your neighbor and win your neighbor if you can't handle your own family? That, I mean, the Bible's full of that. So we have to be sure that we do things the correct way when it comes to this. So, yes, you know, we can, we can be what I, I said earlier. We can be over-dedicated, if you please. So, you know, they, they're just trying to learn to live a life uh, pleasurable apart from their right relationship with Jesus, which can only occur when he's been or she's been broken by recognizing the depth of sin. When a child begins to realize the depth of sin, in his or her life, there comes a time eventually with uh, 11, 12, 13 years old when they begin to realize, I can't make it to heaven because mom and dad are living right. You might make it to heaven when you get up to a certain age on mom and dad's coattail. But it's not going to happen when you begin to feel conviction for yourself. And every child's just a little bit different in the time that they begin to feel that conviction. That is why I never, ever, and some preachers are, have a tendency that they say a six-year-old down seeking for the Holy Ghost, they don't pay any attention. If that child feels the desire for the Holy Ghost, for us to say no, that's one of the greatest sins as far as I'm concerned that you can commit. Because that child feels the need to get their heart right with God. That very thing may stop them from going through some of the stages that I'm telling you about. So this is, this is vital. They have, to, they have to find this. So in this sense, in this sense, follow me, adolescence is a real gift from God. It can prevent the foolishness devised by a child from becoming the philosophy that guides him as an adult. Adolescence is designed by God to literally stop kids in their tracks, make them wrestle with some serious questions before they proceed into adulthood. You need to see it that way. They have to answer some serious, serious questions. I was talking to my wife yesterday just about, about children in, in general and saying that you know, sometimes you think that you overprotect. Where is that line of overprotection? You know, where is that? I, I didn't want my kids to go to public school, and they didn't. I don't want my grandkids to go to public school, and they're not. And then on the other side, I'd also know that somewhere along the line, they're going to go head on into the world, and are they going to be prepared? Because no matter what, you're going to have to hit it one way or the other. But if you can give them all the ammunition, if I can use that term, that you can possibly get them to keep them, to keep them right with God, then they have, and they're more mature, they're able to handle what they face. I know some of them don't. But I believe that if they have enough love behind them, if they know that mom and dad are there, grandma and grandpa are there, they care for them, they've got such a basis or something back there. If, they, if I get knocked down by the world, guess what? I'm going to get picked up. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm going to get picked up. I'm not going to be left laying out here. And if I make some mistakes, guess what? i got someone who still loves me. They, and they're going to look at you, and how you handle them is how Jesus handles them. That's how they equate all this. So it's vital, vital for us to be there for them and to give them what they need. Now, I know there's no guarantee 
that, that kids will be able to find wise answers to questions and that adolescence evokes. And, and the only guarantee is that the responsibilities of living in an adult world will seriously challenge them to question the foolish ideas they learned during childhood. Proverbs thirteen nineteen. Do I have, did I give you that? It sheds light on the developing uh, fool, if you would, at this stage. A longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but fools detest turning from evil. And whenever, whenever a foolish person discovers an effective way to fulfill his or her longings, he detests anyone or anything that tries to make him give, give it up. Even though it's evil, he doesn't want anybody to make him give it up. During adolescence, kids often perceive that adults in their world are conspiring together, perhaps even with God, to make them give up everything that has proved meaningful or useful in satisfying their longings. You know, e.g., you can have certain activities, certain privileges, certain freedoms, certain ways of treating others. Can I give you another one? What you think little Bozo does when he's this tall and it's cute and you laugh at him? When he gets that tall and he does it, he's no longer going to be a cute little bozo. Especially he'll embarrass you. Or she'll embarrass you. So be careful what you allow them to get away with when they're that tall. Let them know that's not cute. I know. I've done it myself. Thought it was cute. And then, you know, they, they get in front of somebody else and you want to slap the fire out of them. Just in general. Because it's no longer cute. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? Everybody? Doug understood. <laughs> okay. All right, so, so you know, it, it, it's, 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 again, it goes back to how are we doing things. Now, folks, there again, you know, when you, there's certain, there, there's certain uh, uh, ways or things that have happened to people in the past Single parenthood, all this other things, you know, you've come to God recently or within the last few years, short time, kids have, you know, have, have had some bad things injected into them at early age. But let me tell you, no matter what, no matter what, and what I tell you on this, God is able to turn things around if we trust him. God is able to turn things around. So regardless, don't think that it's a, it's a lost cause. It, it's not a lost, lost cause at all. Uh, because things can go the right way if we want them to, and we ask God to help us with it. Therefore, tremendous anger in teens then can be generated and unleashed during this particular stage. The the this theme is further amplified by Proverbs 19, verse 3, and it says, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Now look at that again. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet, he is, yet his uh, heart rages against the Lord. An a angry fool looks for someone to blame after his own foolish plans have failed. Now the adolescent often directs his anger towards God, which can account for, again, some of the lack of interest in spiritual matters and the defection of, uh, from churches that occur among kids at this age. They're expressing blame toward God for the circumstances that keep them from finding satisfaction in this world. And on one level, God is to blame. In His wisdom and mercy, He has created a world in which fallen people have great difficulty finding life and fulfillment apart from Him. Do you, you get that? That you're not going to find it. He's created a world that you can't find fulfillment in. 
And no matter how bad you are and what you do, you still don't find it. And so the answer is getting a right relationship with God. So don't be too upset when your kid gets in a real mess because God is trying to direct them to the one place where the answer is. So, so there, you know, God has created the world in this manner. During adolescence, the, the angry, foolish person experiences increasing problems in his thought processes and relationships. He reaches the conclusion that fulfillment in life depends on him changing the kind of person he is and becoming some other kind of person. A thin person, an organized person, a funny person, trying to be something. So he must be someone whom others will want, some, someone who is what it takes to get others to respond. You know, they just simply want somebody to respond to them. That's what they want. Now, as the adolescent begins to make this his new goal, relationships can become much more threatening to him. There is that ever-present danger of being found out or of being discovered for who he or she really is. Something far less than the ideal. Nobody wants to... Does anybody really want to see you at your worst? Huh? I mean, I don't care how good we are. There is still another side. You know, David said, God, help me with my secret sins. You know, and, and God help us not to be, have too many bad secret sins, if you would. But yet there is, you, you know, especially when you get to be that age, you know, you don't, you don't, want, you don't want someone to think that at, uh, uh, what, 26, 27 years old, you still read comic books. Man, nobody would want that, you know. <laughs> and nobody would know anybody in those 60-year-olds would like to. <laughs> And I was I was raised on Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Flash. I'm preaching good now. <laughs> you see how you get different response according to what you say. So yeah. <laughs> no one wants us to see us in that in this way. So you know. It, so the the stage of of incense or angry foolishness can conclude very shortly or. It can continue for a very long time, even in mid to late 20s. And it, it stops with the occurrence of one of two things. And that is the rearrangement, where again, you change things around, or repentance of your foolishness. It's one of two things. You're not really, with rearrangement, you're not really stopping what you're doing. You're just doing it in a different way where people don't recognize it. Or repentance, which means you're turning away from your foolishness. Now, I, I know, and when I get into this rearrangement, you'll understand this a little better, because some of us, uh, even here, have got that problem. We still have some foolishness in our hearts. We just rearrange things to try to hide them. It comes out in a little different way. So an adolescent, again, uh, rearranges his foolishness, again, when he, re when he revises or adapts his strategies. Uh, the crisis of, of puberty triggers anger in the teen because he now sees that his strategies to win these things, the threats to the adolescent's security, sense of impact, sense of being loved, have proven unsuccessful. So if he can figure out a way to adapt 
his foolish strategies to this new adult environment, he'll be able to resolve the crisis of adolescence through merely rearranging his foolishness. His anger will subside to some degree, and he'll appear ready to face life as an adult. However, in his heart, he's going to remain independent of Jesus Christ and dependent upon himself. The key to right relationship with God is always in anybody. I don't care how close you are to God, how much time you spend in prayer, how much you fast. Your key to your right relationship is when you learn to depend on God and not depend on yourself. And see, we are pushed from infancy all the way up to depend on ourselves. That is the fallen nature of man to learn to depend on it. And to some degree, you're looking at me and you're saying, but I've got to do that to some degree. Yes, to some degree you have to take steps, but you need to be sure that you've got the right relationship with God and you're in tune with Him to know when you need to take those steps and how big those steps need to be. That's why we, we learn to, and, and we hide it. Oh, I love God. I come into the church and I praise God. You see young ones, teenagers, they'll come in and they'll worship like crazy on Sunday and go send naked pictures out on the Internet the next day. Why? Because they've learned to depend on themselves. I want to do this. That feels good. Somebody's going to love me if I send them a naked picture of me. And we all know it's the truth. We all know that's the way that's, that happens, and maybe that's an extreme that I just said, but there's other things that go into that. Why? Because that's what people want me to do. This is what's expected of me. This is what my friends at school do. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would do something like that. They just get posted on Facebook. I thought... I would, I'm going to start me a Facebook. And I'm going to put a picture of Alfred E. Newman right there for my Facebook. What me worry. Pastor Robertson, Alfred E. Newman. You know, that's just to have one tooth missing in the front. You know, these people, I, 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 you folks that like this thing, God bless you. God bless you. And you say, why are you so against it? Because all I ever hear is the bad. Have anybody ever told me any good that's done on Facebook? Have I ever heard? I've even read books against Facebook. In fact, I might write one against Facebook. <laughs> now, <laughs> you know, again, in contrast, an adolescent repents of his foolishness when he makes a deliberate choice to forsake his foolish strategies. This means shifting his dependence to Jesus Christ alone and whatever he chooses to provide for his sense of love, impact, and security in his new adult environment. An adolescent stands little chance of choosing the pathway of repentance. This you need to follow without someone helping him become aware of the actual consequences of his foolish strategies. Somebody, now, it does, not, it does not do a great deal of good for you to stand in front of an adolescent 12 or 13 year old, whatever it may be, and tell them how bad your life was because of some bad choices that you made because they're not going to believe you. And they're going to believe, they're going to believe they're indestructible and whatever happened to you is because you're stup my stupid mom or my stupid dad. 
That's not going to, that's not going to help. What's going to help is for you to live right in front of them and gradually bleed into them just a little bit. Look what happened to you because of this. You need to point out their errors. Look what happened because of this. Look what happened because you chose to make this person your friend. Look what happened because you chose to go this direction or do this thing. Understand that, yes, I've had my mistakes, but it's not going to do me any good to tell you about them because you won't believe it anyway. And not only that, let me tell you something else about adolescents. If you want to tell the gory details of your life, they're liable to put it on Facebook. Now, the thing is, (laughs) they do need someone to help them, helping him become aware, again, of the actual consequences of, of his strategies. Now, while God can intervene directly in human lives normally, and I believe this, he chooses to work through human vessels to make his will known. If an adolescent is not fortunate enough to receive God's help through others, he will more than likely progress to the fourth stage in his development. As a fool, God will give you the right people in your life to mentor that person. But if you've got somebody that that takes an interest in your child, then you need to let that person, you need to know that person first. You need to know that person's a good person. I mean, that that's just a given. But if that person, uh, you know, is a little rough on, on the, and I hope, again, if I can get to that point, because the answer to some of this is, is the wounds of a friend. The wounds of a friend is what will make a difference in your child, your teenager, your adolescent. The wounds of a friend. A friend can tell you. Someone that you've seen, someone that, that's, been, that's been a constant, the constant in your life. You know, that, that's, what, that's why pastors, youth workers, that's so important. They need to be consistent in what they do. Because sometimes that's the only constant that child is going to have is that person in the church. Vic Larimer, who was working as an usher, all the little guys would go to him because he consistently had candy in his pocket. They knew that when they went to him that he would have candy in his pocket. And he never failed to have candy in his pocket. You mean, that, that sounds stupid, but yet it's not. You know, some of those kids will remember that to the day they die because there was something consistent. There was this friendly person who had candy in their pocket. Stage four. In the fourth stage of foolishness, which begins in early adulthood, a person remains fixed until a major crisis occurs that renders her foolish strategies ineffective once again. At this point, she often reverts to another period of incensed or angry foolishness. Many adults in their 30s or 40s may experience this when their marriages disintegrate or when their teenagers rebel. Others may not experience such a crisis until they experience an empty nest, a change of occupation or even retirement or the death of a spouse. And during stage four, young adults remain committed to foolish strategies that in some significant ways resemble the style of relating they learned as children. Thus, the second half of Proverbs 22.6 rings true. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not return, he'll not turn from it. And folks, that works both ways. 
You can train up a child in the right way, they'll not turn from it. You train them up in the wrong way, and they'll not turn from it. And especially if you're training them, and you are saying that you're in the church. You know, you are, you're sitting in the church, you're doing everything right, you're, you're, you know, in the church, you're worshiping, you're, you're paying your tithes, you're doing all this, but you know, ever, when you go home, you do whatever you want to do, say whatever you want to do, cuss like a sailor. And when you do that, then that child is going to think that, you know, you're training him up in the wrong way. That's the bane of a lot of churches. People that were brought up the wrong way, that are still in the churches, and they think that, you know, if you, do, you look at them the wrong way, they're angry. They walk out. And they go to another church and mess that, that church up as well. That's good preaching. Thank you. Okay. The fool remains a fool until he dies or repents. And the crises of life are rarely sufficient in and of themselves to drive the foolishness out of them. Neither is corporal punishment, brute force, or a controlled environment. The writer of Proverbs 27:22 makes this very clear. And he says this, Though you grind a fool in a mortar, grinding him like grain with a pestle, you will not remove his folly from him. And what he's saying is this, even though external restraints or force may be adequate to temporarily control a person's foolish behavior, the foolish belief structure, the foolish belief structure remains intact because that person has allowed it to go so long and they've never truly repented of what, of being that kind of a person. You will be a gossiper. You will be a backbiter. You will be you'll be a you know, tail bearer. You'll have all those things in your life if you were brought up that way and you've never truly went down and repented. You can come. You can you you can come to church every service. You could have received the Holy Ghost when you were ten years old. You could have gone to youth congresses. You could have had revivals. And if you were raised that way, if you were constantly listening to hypocrisy, you will be a hypocrite until you come back to the altar and repent. Repent of that completely. And when I say repent, that means, God, this is what I am, and you name it to God, this is what I am, and I don't longer want to be this way. I want to change, and I, I God, forgive me for it, and forgive my family for raising me this way. You know, I'm, I, this is one of the best things you're going to hear as far as getting yourself across the Jordan River, as far as having true revival and working in RB. If you cannot teach someone a Bible study, if you teach them in the wrong way. I don't care what kind of scripture you've got laid out. If you've got a bad spirit behind it, if there's something that you're hiding, believe it or not, a saint, the Bible says, a sinner will pick up on those things quicker than sometimes saints will. Saints won't pick up on it because they're afraid to say anything. Sinner don't care. Need more sinner preachers, I guess. Say whatever they feel like saying. <clears throat> the remedy for foolishness. That's what I said earlier. Let, let, let's look at this. Solomon described how a remedy for foolishness can be applied when he wrote, in Proverbs 20, verse 30, Blows and wounds cleanse away evil. Beatings purge the innermost being. Now listen to this. According to Solomon, combating foolishness requires discipline that is applied by another 
and targeted at dislodging the foolishness within a person's heart. He even goes on in a later proverb to describe who can best apply such discipline. When I said this one earlier, in Proverbs 27, 6, he said, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It takes a friend or a mentor, which should be a friend, in a child's life, or if you're in your 20s and you're still dealing with some of this, someone to look you in the face and say, this is what's wrong with you. You need to make some changes. You know, I would rather someone tell me the truth than to go to hell. And yes, you can come to church and be faithful every service to church and still go to hell. It's according to what the heart is. Is the heart right? Am I right? You know, that, that, that is the, that's the fear. And I, I, no, I'm not going to be able to preach your humanity out of you. We are going to make mistakes. But God help us to recognize those mistakes. God help us to recognize when I do something, I need to have a convicting power through the Holy Ghost to let me know I've done something wrong. And if I choose not to change it, then I'm at fault. But if I say, I don't like to live this way, I've got to make some changes, then God will help me to make those changes. <clears throat> I want to urge you as a parent not to leave this discussion of foolishness without first considering the strategies or formulas for, li- living, for living. You know, you model or, the, or what you're living that you model around your own teens. The foolishness we observe in our kids lives, lives often are often as mirrors of the foolishness in ourselves. You know, what we see in them, and you've heard that said over and over and over again. I don't mind being what my dad was or my mom. But some of you probably do not want to be what they were. And some of you need to look in the mirror often and and say, I am not going to be that way. I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to destroy my life that way. And every day, if it takes doing it every day, is coming to the altar and laying it down and walking away from it. The symbolism of laying down what you could be on that altar and walking away from it. And doing it every day until you get the victory over it. Because life has a way. Life has a way of trying to creep back up on you and make you what you were raised as. Now, if we've raised the right way, thank God for it, and we keep doing it. But some of you, again, some of you, if you're passing on what your mom and dad did to you, to your daughter or son, then God help you. You need to make the changes, and you need to be honest with your child and tell them, I know that I slip up sometimes. I know that I make mistakes, and I'm doing some things that I don't want to do. I want you to understand that. I'm going to do my best with you because I don't want you to be that way. You'd be surprised how honesty with a child can make a difference. It's better than being a hypocrite. You know, it is, uh, it is truly possible to offer our teens a relationship that increases instead of decreases their chances to become foolish adults. No approach can offer a guarantee of success at parenting. Nothing can. However, a biblical approach can offer the hope that your teen will not build his life on the foolish ideas he has detected in you or invented on his own. It may not be you. It may be something he's invented. The kind of relationship you offer your teen is the single most influential factor in shaping the kind of person 
that he chooses to be. If a parent cannot prevent foolishness from being aroused in his young child or from it later being uh, angry or incensed when the child becomes an adolescent, what kind of impact can a parent have? So a, a, a child's foolish strategies are most vulnerable to parents' influences when they break down and leave the teen in some level of despair. There, there comes a time when they will be left in despair. Uh, this, of course, happens most prevalently to kids during adolescence. Now, when a, when a teen becomes frustrated and incensed at her inability to get her desires met on her own, she experiences a lot of despair. Her relationship with her parents at this stage will, to a large degree, determine how she handles her ineffective ways of thinking and relating as she moves into adulthood. Parents have only two choices as to how they can impact their child during this stage. They can offer her a relationship that will encourage her to revise and strengthen her foolish ways you know, of, of, of thinking and relating, or they can offer her one that will encourage her to forsake her foolish ways. Peter, the Apostle Peter, offers a, a clue as to how parents can accomplish the latter. Therefore, he says, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, and like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. It is an authentic taste of what the Lord is really like that motivates a person to stop manipulating her world to get love and impact on her own terms and depend instead upon the Lord for what will nourish her soul. It should be the goal of parents then to offer their teens a genuine taste of God's loving kindness. Where else can kids get a sample of what God is really like if not in their relationships with those who are supposed to represent his interest and authority in their lives? Jesus urged people to look at their relationship with their earthly dads for a small glimpse of what their heavenly father is like in Matthew 7 and 9 through 11. Parents, of course, are not capable, even at their best, of offering kids everything their Father in Heaven can. However, they are capable and responsible for offering to their children a small sample of what God wants to provide for them on a much grander scale. There's two major contributors, and I'm going to have to stop with this, to teens' repentance. Two things that will make a teen repent. Get this. These, there are, again, two basic ingredients that a parent must demonstrate in their relationship with her teen to give him an authentic taste of what God is like. Unconditional involvement, number one, and uncompromising responsiveness. Unconditional involvement and uncompromising responsiveness. These are big words that communicate two big concepts to kids about the nature of their Heavenly Father. A parent's unconditional involvement gives her kid a taste of God's grace. Uncompromising responsiveness gives him a taste of God's justice or righteousness. Without seeing the two modeled in the lives of those who teach them, kids can easily get a false idea of what God is like. When an adolescent asks the question, what kind of person do I have to be to get someone to want and, want and love me? Unconditional involvement from another teaches him that it doesn't have to be anybody but himself to be loved and wanted. He don't have to be anybody else. He doesn't have to look like half the kids at school. That just being who he is is enough to get the love that he needs. Now... 
unconditional involvement takes him, makes him aware of the kind of security that is available to him at any moment in a relationship with Jesus Christ. As a parent uh, takes whatever initiative is possible to stay relationally near the child during problem times, the child gets a taste of the kind of grace that God demonstrates to each one of us, parents and teens alike, in spite of all of our foolishness and our sin. Even when we act like his enemies, God uses his son, his word, and even his people to communicate his desire to remain near. James 4.8 tells us this. His grace provides everything we need to enter and enjoy relationship with him at any time. 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 20 tells you that. When an adolescent asks the question, what kind of person do I have to be to accomplish something of lasting significance? Uncompromising responsiveness from another teaches him that everything he does has lasting impact because of who he is. Because God had create, has created the person to rule with him, his every action, every word and thought have great impact on both God and his creation. Every one of us in here has that. You are created to, to rule with Jesus Christ. So every word you speak, everything you do has lasting impact on this world and on people in the church. Every one of us. And that child needs to know the same thing. They need to know whatever they do, whatever they say, that they are created to be a, a, king, a king's child. That's what they were created for. So they have a lasting impact on whoever and whatever they're around. And that's very vital for you to understand that. Uncompromising responsiveness can help him recognize the kind of impact his life and choices have from God's perspective. As a parent... As a parent takes whatever initiative is necessary to, to develop her teen's awareness of the true impact his choices are having on God, others, and himself, the child can begin to understand and appreciate the significance this life really has in God's eyes. Fools have little understanding of their own ways, especially of the impact or consequences that result from them. They often attach too much significance to some actions, academic performance, athletic perfection, social popularity, and too little um, to others, slander, grumbling, cheating, or lying. And, and they often fail to attach any significance at all to the things that God attaches the greater significance to. The purposes of their own hearts. Parents, parents have that responsibility to respond to their children this way. They have that responsibility, purposes and actions in a way that encourage kids to attach the same significance and meaning to them that God does. Whatever we attach importance to, they will attach importance to. Two forces move a kid toward God. The kid's disillusionment with his wrong strategies to manipulate his world push him to a place where God's ways can become a desirable option. His parents can then pull him to God by exposing him to God's sufficiency to meet his deepest longings for love and, and, and impact. Parents who offer their teens a relationship that gives them a taste of unconditional involvement and uncompromising responsiveness stimulate a, an appetite in a teen's heart for more. You know, you'd understand that we've got to stimulate that appetite for a teenager. Listen, you know, it, it's easy for me to stand up here, and it's easy for me to say, tell you how much I love God and how much God has done for me and how much that I, I, I can 
respect and love him even if nothing else ever good happened for me because of what God has done in the past. But, you know, you've got to remember that maybe these teenagers have always lived off what you've told them. Now you need to point out what God has done for them. You know, God has done a great deal for them for the very fact that they were raised in a church. But they need to understand that. You know, you didn't lose anything by being raised in a church, honey. You had the greatest opportunity that anybody will ever have to make an impact, to fight a true battle, to be a real superhero, if you please. So we have an obligation. And we need to look at the stages. Don't blame ourselves uh, if we're not to blame. And if we are to blame, we need to take a good hard look at ourselves to see what I can change and how much. I mean, you know, it, it's too easy to take a child and just cast them aside and say, I just can't do anything with him or her. It's too easy. They're yours. You had them. You made them. God gave them to you. So you've got a responsibility. They don't stop being yours when they start walking. They don't stop being yours when, you know, they become a teenager. They don't stop being yours the first time they do something dumb. Just remember how many times you've done something dumb and they're still doing something dumb now. God help us. <laughs> Let's stand. <clears throat> You know, one of the best things I could possibly do is probably let my wife teach this. She would do much better. Of course, she is. <clears throat> she doesn't like to deal with them when they get to be about age 12 or 13 too much. She has a, you know. What's that? That's right. That's right. Nursery is better. You've got a better chance to get them started in the right direction with her in the nursery. You know, I think all of us, and if I can be honest, all of us have our little quirks. And one of the things that probably, you know, I'm, I love our nation. I was in the military, and I, I love our country. I think it's the greatest country in the world. But there's times... There's times when I get so upset because I see people who have children. To me, they need to be spayed. I'm serious. They keep having them, and they don't take care of them. Or they abort them. You know, I, I, I'm sorry. I just, I get, sometimes I look at that, or you see some little kid that, you know, mom shook it to death. or I, I just, you know, I, I can't. I can't handle that. I, I just, I can't handle it. You know, when I know there's good parents, there are people that can't have children that would love to take that child. They are a gift from God. And God gave you that child for a certain period of time to do your best with, and you better do your best with it. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. And Questions or comments while you're standing on the ones you get up so you could get the blood circulating. Questions or comments on my starboard sign?
Are you perfect parents? Come on. <laughs> you try to be perfect. And I say that's all we ask. If you said I'm a perfect parent, I would not believe you. So you don't have to say that because I'm not a perfect parent. <laughs> but I'm trying. And you never stop being a parent. Never. Anybody on my middle here want to tell me that you never stop being a parent? Am I telling the truth over here? Oh, you're just starting. You don't. You don't count. You. You don't. You're just starting. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? How about over here? Now, you always have a comment. All right. You did or didn't? Okay. You're right. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. You know, mentor. One thing about mentoring, I've taught on this before. You cannot mentor somebody that does not have the same likes and dislikes that you have, because you're you're messing up. You cannot find. You have to find someone that has something of the same kind of likes that that child has, or teenager, if you would, uh, or it's not going to work. And that's where our problem is. It, it, you know, it took, it took all the church to raise your two, didn't it? <laughs> it did. It took the, everybody mentored those two guys, and you know, they still, they still come up to me, especially Keith, and hugs me and calls me dad. You know, and that means a great deal. That means a lot to me. There was times I'd like to knock them both in the head. You know, there really was. Still do, maybe. But, you know. but the thing is, there was a lot of people took an interest in those boys. And, uh, and that, means, that means a lot. And sometimes you do, you wonder, is it worthwhile? You know, am I doing any good? Am I spinning my, my wheels until they get it to be adults? And you hear that come from them, and it makes a big difference. Love those kids with everything you got. This world is such a mess, and the Jesus is coming, and we don't have a lot of time. Let's raise our hands to the Lord together right now. Father, we thank you. We honor you, we glorify you, and we bless you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you for being with us this evening, and help us to be the kind of parent that we need to be. I pray right now, God, that you would help us in every way and help this group of people. Keep them safe as they travel in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.